We are going to get into a new topic, not a new topic necessarily, but a continuation of the topic that we've been on, which is the false doctrines of the Catholic Church. And we've, we started with what? What was the first false doctrine that we talked about? Jackson? The Roman Catholic Church is the only true church, and of course we showed from the Word of God that that's not true. What do we talk about next? Do you remember the second false doctrine? Okay, that's, that's the third one. I'll give that to you. What's the second one? Do you remember? Or just give, just give me any ones. What's the ones that we've talked about? Nitin. Peter, right? And that led us to Brother Eric? The Pope. All right. Um, missing two. Alex. Mary. All right. Give you some relief. Last one. Goes right along with the Pope. The priesthood. Talked about the priesthood. Very good. So tonight we're going we're gonna to start in on this. It got a little bit long on me, so I'm going to split it in half, and uh, that way it doesn't, that way we're not here for three hours tonight. But we're going to talk about the sacraments. That is another one of the false doctrines of the Catholic Church. Now, when it comes to our beliefs, we don't call them sacraments, we call them ordinances, but what are the two ordinances that the, that Baptist believe? Johan, give me one. Lord's Supper, Alex. Baptism, that's the only two, right? The Catholic Church has seven sacraments that they, uh, that they sanction, I guess, if you will, which we'll get to them in just a second. But for the average Roman Catholic, especially at a young age, uh, this concept called the sacraments takes a whole lot of their attention. And uh, especially if they're involved in any kind of, uh, you know, the Catholic school or any of that kind of stuff, they're taught these things from a very young age. And so the term sacrament comes from the Latin which means sacred or mysterious. And, and those really, they, these sacraments have become rites of passage for uh, a Catholic person's journey through life in, in the arms of the church. This comes from Catholic.org in 2015. There are seven sacraments in the church. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, matrimony, and holy orders. The purpose of the sacraments is to make people holy to build up the body of Christ, and finally to give worship to God. But being signs, they also have a teaching function. So the Roman Catholic Church views the, these uh, sacraments essentially as absolutely necessary uh, means of grace by which a person is justified from their sin. So if you don't keep these sacraments, you don't make it to heaven, is essentially what it comes down to. And so uh, this comes from the Council of Trent in 1563. If anyone saith that the sacraments of the new law are not necessary unto salvation, but superfluous, and that without them or without the desire thereof men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification, though all the sacraments are not necessary for every individual, let him be anathema. In other words, you are accursed, you are banned to hell, banished to hell, if, if whatever the right word is, uh, if you don't follow through on the sacraments, if you believe by in, in grace, uh, in, in uh, salvation by grace through faith alone, and you don't include the sacraments, very, very clearly here, this Council of Trent said, you are not going to heaven. And so obviously, it's very obvious then that they add these things into it for salvation. In other words, the Roman Catholic position is that faith in Christ alone is not enough for justification. You also need the sacraments. Uh, they're indispensable. Not all of them. Uh, obviously, but, but everybody needs at least some of them in order to be able to go to heaven. And so obviously every single one of these is based on, if not completely, works. And uh, so what I want to talk about tonight is a couple of these, and then next week we'll get into the rest of them. But let's talk about baptism first of all. 
That's the first sacrament, meaning without baptism, you cannot receive any of the other sacraments. And so to them, baptism essentially removes the taint of, of original sin. Essentially, what they view baptism as is your sins are being washed away when you go under that water. Or a, a lot of times they don't even do baptism by immersion. Most of the time it's a sprinkling. And um, honestly, you know, uh, that's, that's why they push infants to be baptized. You have to get rid of that original sin somehow, and so if we can baptize an in infant, we are washing away the taint of that original sin. If they aren't and they die, they go to hell, even as an infant, because that original sin was never washed away. And obviously, the Catholic Church is the only one that can do that. So they perform infant baptisms for children that are born into Catholicism, adult baptism for, for people who approach the Catholic Church later on in life, which, as we talked about weeks ago when we were kind of introducing the Catholic Church, there is no... Uh, there are very, very few people who actually come into the Catholic Church as adults, relatively speaking. Most of them are Catholics because they were born into the Catholic Church. And once you're confirmed and once, you have, uh, once you've been baptized in all of these other things, then you have to continue in that or you don't go to heaven, uh, at least according to them, obviously. But um, you know, most of the time that's, that, that ceremony is, is accomplished by sprinkling. Sometimes it's by pouring very, very rarely is it done by immersion. But baptism then makes that person, young or old, a member of the church. So if you are an infant and you're baptized, you're a member of the church. If you're an adult and you decide to come into the Catholic Church and you're baptized, you're a member of the church. Here's what they say. By the sacrament of baptism, this, this comes from the Vatican Council II, uh, by the sacrament of baptism, whenever it is properly conferred in the way the Lord determined and received, which, by the way, in the way that the Lord determined, I mean, to me, baptism by immersion is, is uh, the only possible way that we see in the Bible, right? How many times do they go down into the water? Not one time do we see that they were sprinkled, but uh, the way the Lord determined and received with proper dispositions of soul, man becomes truly incorporated into the crucified and glorified Christ and is reborn to a sharing of the divine life. Very, very obvious then that they are saying that you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Here's another way, the New Catholic Catechism in 1994. Uh, by baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin and all personal sins, as well as all punishment for sin. Here's another statement that, that, they, come, that they say that, that the New Catholic Catechism says. Baptism not only purifies from all sins, but also makes the neophyte a new creature, an adopted son of God who has become a partaker of the divine nature, member of Christ and co-heir with him in a temple of the Holy Spirit. So very, very clearly, if you're not baptized, you're not saved, according to the Catholic Church. Now, let's look at a little bit of a biblical response here. And again, we've talked about this um, from, our, from, from strictly our perspective in the, in the biblical perspective on baptism. But since we're talking about it in this context, let's look at a few verses from the Word of God. Uh, first thing is that baptism has to be preceded by faith in Christ. And so it's, it's invalid for infants. Okay, what, Look what the Bible says in Acts chapter 8 and verse number 36. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See... Here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Well, obviously, uh, this is the story of, of um, the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And uh, he's reading through the, um, uh, the Old Testament, and he's got questions, and he says, hey, I, I believe now, here's water, why should I not be baptized? And he said, do you believe with all your heart? You know, so it was, it was preceded. It was definitely preceded by 
uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and if, you, if you look at verse number 37, and it uh, I'm in the wrong, I'm in Acts chapter 9. Uh, verse 37, and Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So baptism was, was uh, preceded by faith in Jesus Christ, right? Baptism didn't have anything to do with being saved. And of course, then baptism is to be by immersion because the whole purpose of baptism is not to wash our sins away. The whole purpose of baptism is to picture faith in the gospel, which is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see that in verse number 38 of Acts chapter 8. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. What's the point of going down into the water if you're just going to sprinkle a little bit of it on your head, right? Uh, the word baptize literally means to immerse. That's what, I mean, by the very nature of the word, that's what baptism is. And so... Uh, and, and we see a lot of that throughout the Bible. We're not going to take the time to go into that tonight. But uh, turn over to Romans chapter 6, because I think this is also necessary to point out. But as you're turning over there, the whole idea of infant baptism, what is the purpose of baptizing an infant? If you believe that baptism can save you, then it makes perfect sense. But if you follow the Word of God and the gospel... It makes no sense whatsoever. A baby cannot even make a decision for themselves. And, a, you know, if a parent can save their child, we can't, right? If, if I could get saved for my kids, uh, I would have, right? If I could get saved for people in the auditorium that are not, I would have. We can't. That's a decision that has to be made individually. And a baby cannot make that decision for themselves, right? So infant baptism is essentially worthless. Uh, but, but here's the thing in Romans chapter 6. Baptism conveys no grace. It's entirely symbolic. Uh, we are not saved by baptism. Our sins are not washed away by baptism. We're not, we're not completing the process of salvation by baptism. It is completely a symbolic thing that we do. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. It's strictly a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the Roman Catholic Church baptism is it's unscriptural, it's, it's heretical, it's manipulative, it's controlling, it's invalid. It does absolutely nothing for somebody who gets baptized in the Catholic Church. Our Baptist position on the Roman Catholic uh, baptism led directly to our name, which started with the Anabaptist, which was to rebaptize, because obviously everybody that, you know, that was part of the Catholic Church was baptized. When you get saved, you get baptized again because the, that, that baptism was invalid. Your, your original baptism as, a, as an infant or as a child was invalid. So Anabaptist means to rebaptize. That's where the, That's where our name came from in the first place. And so um, those who insist on baptizing by immersion later on in life, only following a personal profession of faith. That's what baptism is all about. That's the baptism that we believe in. Let me give you then the second sacrament, and that is confirmation. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. This is the rite, R-I-T-E, that is given after baptism, usually in, in early childhood, um, but it's, it's performed by the laying on of the priest's hands and, and anointing with oil. And confirmation is supposed to, quote, according to them, increase and deepen baptismal grace. 
So you're baptized, you receive salvation, you get the grace that comes from Jesus Christ through that baptism, and now this confirmation just deepens that grace. Um, so by confirmation, uh, the person that gets confirmed is, is supposed to receive the Holy Spirit, especially uh, in his gifts and serving power. They say this in uh, Christian celebration, the sacraments, in confirmation, the baptized receive the Spirit poured out on the apostles at Pentecost, and by this gift they are more perfectly conformed to Christ and are strengthened so that they may bear witness to Christ for the building up of the church. We'll, t we'll talk a, a lot more about this later. Um, even Nitten brought this, this point up on uh, Sunday night when he was talking about it. When you don't understand the Bible and how it was written and why it was written, then you can get completely confused on something like this. You're not, you're not given the Holy Spirit at your baptism. You're not given the Holy Spirit at your confirmation. A man cannot give you the Holy Spirit, right? Um, but the church doesn't distribute salvation to, to people. The church has no power to distribute that salvation. Um, blessing and salvation and all of these other things that the Catholic Church is trying to convey through baptism and confirmation and all these things are in Jesus Christ, and, and they're received when a person receives the gospel. And we, we have lots of 1 John 5, 12, but as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, right? Not, not a priest that's giving you that power. Him, Jesus Christ, gave you that power. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, and verse number 7. I'm going to mention a lot of verses tonight. You can write these down. I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to turn to all of these just for the sake of time. Um, but if you want to have these that you can go back and look at later, they'll be helpful for you. Um, but the, the, the church's job is just to point men to salvation in Jesus Christ by proclaiming the gospel. Like I said, we cannot save anyone. I don't have any power to save anyone. All I can do is point them to Jesus Christ, and we can say, hey, you're going the wrong way. This is the way that you need to go. Go this way. Go this way. Go this way, right? Uh, um, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's our job. It's as simple as it is. And I, I got sidetracked for a second because I saw a T-shirt that said, uh, and I'm trying to remember exactly what it said, but it said something about heaven is my home. I'm just recruiting as long as I can while I'm here, something along those lines. And that's exactly what we're doing. You know, once, once you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, your, your job is to recruit as many people to go with you as you can, but you can't force them to come. All you can do is point the way to them, and you can't give them the ability to come. It's, it's their decision, and the church has no power in that either. The church's role is to invite. Jesus Christ is the one who receives and blesses and saves sinners. Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 16 says this, Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. What's he talking about there when he says, holding forth the word of life? It's saying, I am showing you how to get there. This is what holding forth the word of life is, so that I, at least at the end of my life, I can say that I didn't do this in vain. I took as many people with me as I could. I'm holding forth the word of life. And that's all we can do. We just use the word of God as a, as a lamp. The word, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, Right? And that's exactly what we're trying to use it for, to, to light the way for others. So uh, the church doesn't hold forth life to the sinners. The church, the church holds forth the word of life to those sinners. And that's all we can do. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19. And, and again, I'm not going to read these passages for the sake of time, but we see that the church doesn't have the package of reconciliation. It has the message of reconciliation, right? I cannot reconcile somebody. I can give them the message of reconciliation and show them how they can get that reconciliation but Christ is the one who reconciles sinners to God. The church's job is to beg men to receive that reconciliation. But that's all we can do. We cannot give it. 
So confirmation, baptism, none of those things do anything for somebody who is not saved. The third one is holy orders, which is the priesthood. And again, not everyone can receive the priesthood, and so not everyone can receive all seven sacraments. Um, we spent a whole week on that, so we're not going to spend any more time on the priesthood, but that is one of the sacraments. The fourth sacrament, and the one that we're going to spend uh, the rest of the time tonight on, is the Eucharist, or Mass. They call it the Eucharist. They also call it Mass. That's what we know it as, is Mass. And that's, that's the, the Roman Catholic form of the Lord's Supper. Um, so when we say that our two ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, we're not talking about Catholic Mass, because the way the Catholics do Mass is way different than the way that we do the Lord's Supper. Um, that's the only, the only thing that, is, uh, that, that we have in common with that is that it's the same elements that are used, bread and, and, and the juice, but that's about it. Everything else is completely different. And so the Roman Catholic service is, is really centered around the daily repetition of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. For, for a, uh, you know, a church that celebrates the cross so much, it sure does miss the entire point of what the, uh, the Mass is all about or the Lord's Supper is all about. The Mass, the mass really is just a pageant reenacting and, and redoing the crucifixion. And it's, it really is a very painstaking process that, is, that takes months for the priest to learn. And I don't know if you've ever been in a Catholic service. Um, I've never actually sat in a service, but I've, I've been now through several Catholic funerals, and they do the same thing at the funerals. And it is this entire process of all these different things that they have to go through in order to perform the Mass. But let me read you a, uh, just a little section of a book. I've, I've mentioned this book quite a few times. It's called Roman Catholicism by, by, a, by a lady named Lorraine Botner. But she says this, and this is, this is kind of that process that the priest does. He makes the sign of the cross 16 times, turns towards the congregation six times, lifts his eyes to heaven 11 times, kisses the altar eight times, folds his hands four times, strikes his breast 10 times, bows his head 21 times, genuflex eight times, bows his shoulder seven times, blesses the altar with the sign of the cross 30 times, lays his hands flat on the altar 29 times, prays secretly 11 times, prays aloud 13 times, takes the bread and the wine and turns it into the body and blood of Christ, covers and uncovers the chalice 10 times, goes to and fro 20 times, and in addition performs numerous other acts. His bowings and genuflections are imitations of Christ in his agony and suffering. The various articles of clothing worn by the priest at different stages of the drama represent those worn by Christ. The seamless robe, the purple coat, the veil with which his face was covered in the house of Caiaphas, a girdle representing the cords with which he was bound in the garden, the cords which bound him to the cross, etc. If the priest forgets even one element of the drama, he commits a great sin and technically may invalidate the Mass. So if you've ever watched this, you can see that that's exactly what they're doing. And they're not going to say, you know, and now I'm going to bow down 12 times or whatever, but you see that whole process. And that's what I'm saying. Really, the entire Mass is just a reenactment and a redoing of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then following that ceremony, the priest prays over all of this stuff and magically infuses this small round piece of unleavened bread, literally turning it into the body of Jesus Christ. Um, that is, that's what is known as transubstantiation. When you take the bread, and you, which many times they're actually using 
real wine, not, not grape juice, but when you take those elements, it literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, all the Catholics then line up to, quote, receive Christ as, you know, the priest places that wafer in their, in, on their tongue and, uh, in, you know, into their mouth. And so, um, and I've seen that happen many, many times as well at, at, these, at these funerals and things also where, you know, if you want to, if you're not Catholic, if you're not Catholic, you can't receive the communion. Um, and so what they do at these funerals is, you know, if, if you're not Catholic, but you want the priest to give you a blessing, then just cross your hands like this or cross your arms like this, and the priest will give you a blessing. Well, you know, any of the ones that I've ever been a part of, I don't need a priest to bless me because it does absolutely nothing. And so I just, I stay in my seat and whatever else. But just about everybody else, out of, out of respect, I suppose, uh, you know, will go forward and let the priest bless them and do all that kind of stuff. Um, I have too much respect for the truth of the Word of God to take part in any of that kind of stuff, and I'm, I'm certainly not there to try to make a, you know, a, a statement or anything like that, but uh, to me, it's very, very blasphemous, and all the priest is doing is sending these people to hell because they think they're doing what's necessary to get to heaven, when in actuality, they're doing the exact opposite of that. Um, but I, if, if you've never seen that, and that's exactly what they do, the priest, they, they stand there, and I think they hold out their hands to show that, they're, that they want to receive it, and they open their mouth, and the priest, you know, puts it on their tongue, and they, you know, they eat it, they go back to their seats. And then, um, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the bread and wine, as I just mentioned, actually become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ through, the, through these rituals that are performed by the priests. And so the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is, is re-offered by every single Mass. Um, and so then by being present at the ceremony, partaking of the elements of the Eucharist or the Mass, these these. The, the people who participate in that are, are supposedly receiving spiritual nourishment. And here's a, here's a few different quotes. This, this comes from different Vatican councils, and, and a lot of their, all of it is from their writings, but this is what they have to say about it. Hence, the Mass, the Lord's Supper, is at the same time and inseparably a sacrifice in which the sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated, a memorial of the death and resurrection of the Lord who said, Do this in memory of me. In the Mass, therefore, the sacrifice and sacred meal belong to the same mystery, so much so that they are linked by the closest bond. For in the sacrifice of the Mass, our Lord is immolated when He begins to be present sacramentally as the spiritual food of the faithful under the appearances of bread and wine. So what they're saying is literally His body and blood is present. It looks like bread, it looks like wine, but it is actually the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. For in it... Christ perpetuates in an unbloody manner the sacrifice offered on the cross, offering himself to the Father for the world's salvation through the ministry of the priests. Again, this, is, this comes from a different, uh, a different writing, but in this sacrament, Christ is present in a unique way, whole and entire, God and man, substantially and permanently. This presence of Christ under the species is called real, not in an exclusive sense, as if the other kinds of presence were not real, but par excellence. Another writing. In the celebration of Mass, there is proclaimed the wonderful mystery of the real presence of Christ our Lord under the Eucharistic species. Christ becomes present through an essential change in the elements. Again, as often as the sacrifice of the cross by which Christ our Pesh is sacrificed is celebrated on the altar, the work of our redemption is carried out. So the, the Roman Catholic Church views the Mass as the sacrifice of Jesus Christ over and over and over and over again. And here's, here's what they say about that. The Holy Mass is one and the same sacrifice with that of the cross, insomuch as Christ, 
who offered himself a bleeding victim on the cross to his heavenly father, continues to offer himself in an unbloody manner on the altar through the ministry of the priest. So essentially, Jesus is being sacrificed again every single time the mass is, is given. Uh, so the consecrated wafer then is worshipped as Christ. The faithful should therefore strive to worship Christ our Lord in the blessed sacrament. Pastors or priests should exhort them to this and set them a good example. The place in a church or oratory where the blessed sacrament is reserved in the tabernacle, the box where the consecrated wafer is kept in worship between masses should be truly prominent. It ought to be suitable for private prayer so that the faithful may easily and fruitfully by private devotion also continue to honor our Lord in this sacrament. They say also, all the faithful ought to show to this most holy sacrament the worship which is due to the true God, as has always been the custom of the Catholic Church. In other words, what they're saying is you should literally worship this wafer. It is the body of Jesus Christ. He's being sacrificed again for you when you're taking that. And of course, certain forms of, mass, of, the, of the mass have changed since Vatican II. Uh, for example, it can, be, it can be given in the common language, the vernacular, the common vernacular. It doesn't have to be done in Latin like it used to be, but, but the foundational dogma of the mass that is given by the Catholic Church has not changed. And, there, and it's, just, it's, a, it's a gross perversion of this simple meal that was given uh, as a way to remember Jesus Christ for us in the New Testament. So let me give you then some reasons why we, why we reject the Mass. And I really, we'll get to both of these. I want you to turn mainly to two passages. So you can go to Hebrews chapter 7 first, and then we're going to look in, in uh, John chapter 1. But uh, let me give you a few things here. And again, I've got some other verses that will go along with this that, that we're not going to take the time to go to just for the sake of time. Um, and there's not, there's, there's, not a, there's not a lot of these, but there's, there's some things that we need to discuss to understand this. Number one, Jesus could not possibly have meant that the bread and the juice would actually become his body and blood. No way that he could have possibly meant that. Because first, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he was actually there. Right? He wasn't already sacrificed when he instituted the Lord's Supper. So how could it have literally become his body and his blood at the first Lord's Supper that was instituted? Right, um, the, the piece of wafer... That, that they say is his body, the cup of wine that he said is his blood, could not possibly have been his body and his blood. And this is where they, this is, so um, when Jesus was instituting that, he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, right? Take, you know, this is, you know, drink, this is my blood, which is shed for you, right? Well, look, Jesus said this is his body. He was sitting there in physical person saying that. So obviously he was not saying that it was his physical body and his physical blood that they were eating and drinking right? Jesus was there. And so he was certainly indicating that these were symbols that he was using, not his actual body and his actual blood. Second thing, Paul very plainly taught that the Lord's Supper is a symbolic memorial meal. And, and, and again, we can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We've done that many times when we, when we do the Lord's Supper ourselves. And you can see Paul is very plainly saying this is symbolic. This is, this is a way to remember Jesus Christ. And of course, Paul said that he received that teaching by divine revelation. So if it came by divine revelation, and he's saying that it's a symbolic meal, then it's not the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And of course, then the third thing is that in John chapter 6, Jesus explained the meaning of his teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He said it has a symbolic, not a literal meaning. And you can, go, you can look at that in John chapter 6, verse 35, 38, 41, 46, 
48, 53. That whole passage really in John chapter 6, Jesus is explaining that. And obviously he is explaining that this is not his literal body and blood. So Jesus could not have possibly meant that the bread and the juice would actually become his body and blood. That's one reason why we reject it. Secondly, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and I think this is probably the, the most important reason, but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was a once-for-all event. Um, when Jesus Christ died on the cross in John chapter 19, he said, it is finished. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, with, with its repetition of Christ's sacrifice, in other words, them saying that he is sacrificed every single time you take the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ or take the bread and the, and the, and the cup, they're saying that, that the eternal sufficiency of the atonement was not enough or, there, or, or, or to say that there is no eternal sufficiency in the atonement. If Jesus Christ has to keep getting sacrificed again and again and again and again in order for that atonement to last, then it, then it wasn't a once-for-all thing. It has to keep happening over and over and over, otherwise Jesus is, is not enough. But Jesus died only once, and that was enough. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 7, in verse number 27. Get this. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. I mean, now, he's obviously referring back to the Old Testament. The priests had to go daily in the temple and make sacrifices on behalf of the people and for their sins and everything else. But it fits exactly with what the Catholic Church does today. He doesn't need to do it every single day, let alone millions of times a day all the way across the country and the world in these Catholic churches that are offering the Mass, right? He did it once. Turn a couple pages over to Hebrews chapter 9, and Hebrews chapter 9 really is, is like this entire passage really explains this very well, but verse number 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the truth, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So, Jesus Christ does not have to be sacrificed over and over. He's not continually offering himself, as they say, to be sacrificed every single time that mass takes place. He did it once, and that's all he needed to do because that sacrifice was enough for all of eternity for the atonement of our sins. Here's the third reason why we reject the Mass, and that is because a sacrifice without blood cannot atone for sins. Well, they say, well, this is a bloodless sacrifice. It was a bloody sacrifice the first time. These are all bloodless sacrifices. Well, the Bible says very plainly in Leviticus chapter 17 and in Hebrews chapter 9 that without shedding of blood, there is no remission, right? You cannot have atonement. You cannot have atonement for sins without the sacrifice. So the Mass has no atoning value which is what they say the whole point of it is. Fourth reason, masses for the dead, which have been a central feature of Roman Catholicism for centuries, are entirely foreign to the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible do we find a mass for, for the dead. You cannot pray somebody out of purgatory. You cannot pray somebody out of hell. You cannot pray somebody into heaven. Nowhere in the Bible do we find that anywhere. Um, 
Prayers and rituals for, for the dead are actually paganism, not real biblical Christianity. And of course, Deuteronomy chapter 18, Deuteronomy chapter 26, we see uh, passages that, that explain those, those pagan practices. Nothing in there talks about the uh, 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 biblical praying for the dead. In fact, any kind of contact with the dead has always been uh, condemned by the word of God, right? Didn't, didn't Saul do that? Right, and he was he was condemned for that, and others that tried to do the same thing. So, masses for the dead are not found in the Bible anywhere. Number five, the supposed changes that occur in the mass are clearly deceptions. The wafer and the wine, they remain unchanged in appearance, color, odor, form. But the Catholic Church requires its people to believe that the elements actually become Christ. How come it stays the form of bread while you're chewing on it? How come you don't get that, that stinging taste of blood while you're drinking it? Is it literally becoming the body and blood of Jesus Christ? That's what you're saying it is, right? How come it doesn't change form? How come it doesn't change color? How come it doesn't change texture? How come it doesn't change any of those things? You're saying it's literally becoming the body and blood of Christ. Obviously, that's a deception, uh, and they call that deception a miracle, but, but true biblical miracles are observable, right? Any miracle that was ever done in the Bible was a miracle that was observable, and that obviously is one that's not. Number six, and we just have two more. Number six is actually very quick, and turn to John chapter four. It's idolatry to worship the elements of the mass. Obviously, we see that in Exodus chapter 20. Anything that's put above Jesus Christ, anything that's put above God is an idol, Right? Um, and they, they are told to worship the wafer as the body of Jesus Christ. And so John chapter 4 and verse 24 says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it's idolatry to worship the elements of the mass. The last one is this. There is no semblance between the drama of the Catholic mass and the simple ceremony that was initiated by Jesus Christ and practiced by the New Testament churches. We very plainly see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 what the simplicity of the Lord's Supper is and what it symbolizes and why we do it. Um, there are not books and books and books and books written on how to do the Lord's Supper, how to do the Mass, how to do all of these different kind of things because it's a very simple process. We're commanded to do it in remembrance of Jesus Christ. And of course, the Bible promises that perfect security and that assurance through Christ's once for all sacrifice on Calvary. He doesn't need to keep getting sacrificed over and over again because his sacrifice on the cross was enough to cover our sins once, and that's all we needed. Any person that places his trust entirely in Jesus Christ and his shed blood never needs to doubt his, his eternal salvation before God. John chapter 3 and verse 16, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. There's so many other verses that talk about that as well. Um, but receiving Christ is not a physical thing, Right? You don't receive Christ. We talk about, have you accepted Jesus Christ? Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Well, when the Catholics talk about receiving Christ, they're talking about eating this wafer that is becoming the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. It's not swallowing a piece of food that's magically somehow turning into Jesus, right? It's a reception in your heart of his claims. Are you going to accept what Jesus said about how to get to heaven, about how to have your sins forgiven. It's a belief in your heart that, that the gospel of the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is sufficient in and of itself to pay for your sins. John chapter 1 and verse number 12. 
I quoted it already, but I want you to look at it real quick. John chapter 1 and verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Well, it seems pretty simple to me, right? You accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you become a son of God. You cannot unbecome a son of God and then become a son of God and then unbecome a son of God and then become a son of God. The same way that, you know, Jesus Christ told Nicodemus, he must be born again. You don't get born and then unborn and then born and then unborn and born and unborn and back and forth every time you lose your salvation and then get it back, right? It just, it's not practical with the, with the pictures that were given in scripture of what salvation is. You're either a son or you're not. Right? You don't, be, you don't lose that sonship and then get sonship and then lose that sonship and then get sonship. You don't go back and forth with all those things. And so all of the pictures that we have in the Bible of what salvation is lose all of their meaning if you could lose your salvation. And you, there's no point, there's no need to, to constantly uh, receive Jesus Christ and receive him and receive him and receive him and receive him, which is what they're doing through the communion. Um, but really what the Mass was designed to do is to hold people in this, this superstitious awe. It was designed to, to exalt the priest in the eyes of the people. It was designed to keep them in that perpetual bondage to the church because if you don't perform the mass, there's no way you could get to heaven. You haven't received Jesus Christ. How can you get to heaven if you're not willing to take the mass and, and receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ and, and get his sacrifice again for you, Right? And so it was designed for them to keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back. But the biblical Lord's Supper, far from repeating Christ's sacrifices, is simply just a reminder to us of the glorious sacrifice by which we are redeemed unto Jesus Christ, unto God through Jesus Christ. And so uh, it's a very, very simple memorial, very, very simple reminder, not this long, drawn-out process that they have turned it into that... that honestly makes the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of none effect because you have to keep accepting that sacrifice and he has to, be keep, he has to keep being re-sacrificed over and over and over and over again. So uh, the, the Catholic Mass is another sacrament that we absolutely and completely reject. We'll, we'll stop there for tonight. We're going to get into penance and finish out with the, with the last three uh, when we get back together next week. But I figured that uh, a penance is a, is a little bit longer of one as well because that absolutely has everything to do with salvation by grace through faith, which is not what the Catholic Church teaches. And so I want to take a few minutes on that. And rather than going till 8.30 tonight, I figure we'll split it into two and do it next week. So let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you, as we always do, for the truth of the Word of God. I pray that you'd help us to simply believe it in its simplicity and that we wouldn't try to complicate things that you've not made complicated. I pray that you'd help us as we, uh, as we continue to go through these different things that, that, that honestly the Bible completely rejects and many things that are not even found in the Bible at all. I pray that you'd help us to understand them so that we might help, uh, be able to use them to lead someone to Jesus Christ. I pray that those who are uh, in the clutches of the Catholic Church would realize the error of the, of the Catholic Church and come to know Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior. I pray that you'd use us to do it. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.